what a passage. Even by today's standards, the execution of Zimri and Cosby is a pretty shocking story, isn't it? It's got everything in it. It's got sex, it's got religion, it's got gore, it's got rebellion. And I wonder what your first impressions of it are. In fact, I want you to uh, take a moment and imagine with me that you are in charge of a newspaper and you had to write a headline for an article like this. What would you say? Well, maybe you'd be sympathetic towards these two lovers. They sound like two unfortunate lovers, an ancient version of Romeo and Juliet. They were caught in a conflict that they had no control over. And so your headline might read, Star-crossed lovers impaled by forces outside their control. Or if your social conscience is pricked, you might show their death as an example of discrimination against mixed marriages. The headline might be, Honor killing by a rabid priest of Israel's God. On another note, you might think their death was a result of a cruel and unusual punishment. Maybe something like this, executed for illicit love. And if you believe in fair-minded news reporting, you might just write diplomatic ties cut over a Transjordan murder of a Midianite princess. Whatever way we look at the story of Zimri and Cosby, we in the 21st century struggle to understand how a story of love and union could end up in death. What kind of jealous God would meddle in the private affairs of two individuals? What's more, what kind of crazy God would seek to destroy the very people whom he had just blessed through an enemy prophet, no less, the prophet Balaam, only a few chapters ago? We struggle to accept a God who is angry with his people. We struggle to face a God who would actually carry out his judgment of death. And yet here in this part of the Bible, God is not the cuddly grandfather bearing gifts at Christmas time. He is a warrior burning with rage, taking retribution and punishing those who oppose him. What gives? I think the answer centers on how we look at God's actions. Are they the actions of an angry and capricious God who destroys as he pleases? Or are they the actions of a righteous judge who sits and acts consistently with who he has revealed himself to be? Numbers 25 tells us what God does to protect his honor. Let's go a little bit more into this idea of God's honor. What is it? In verse 11 of our passage, the priest Phineas is commended for being zealous for God's honor. Now, it might seem that these are translations of two different words, but in fact, they're the same root word in the original language. And it makes some sense. Right? When we're zealous for a cause, we feel passionate about something, we're willing to act on it. Maybe it's the environment, or maybe it's affordable housing. We don't just talk about it, we'll go and picket at protests, we'll write letters, we'll call up the local MP. And as for honour, what do you say if you wanted to tell someone you'd keep your promise no matter what? You'll swear by it, right? And what are you going to swear by? you swear by your word, 
You swear by your honor. You're swearing on your character and your integrity. So when the Bible says that Phineas's zeal was for God's honor, it's saying that he cared passionately about God's character being brought into disrepute, so much so that he would kill for it. And this fits because the same Hebrew word is used in Exodus 34, 14. It's a passage where God declares his name. His name is jealous. And the word jealous is that same word as zealous and honor. And notice what it's linked with. It's linked with God's name. So what would God do for his honor? It's the same as asking, what would God do for the sake of his name? We could well turn the question to ourselves. What would we do for our own name's sake or reputation? We'd fight to clear our name if we were slandered. We'd build our reputation up before our peers, before the community. Today's passage is all about God acting passionately for the sake of his honor. Because failing to do so would mean his denying who he is. Failing to do so would mean that he is not God. He isn't who he declares to be, a holy judge, a powerful king, and a might, almighty saviour. And so with that background, we begin to see a little bit about why it is that Israel and Zimri's sin warranted such an angry response from God. From God's perspective, Zimri and Cosby's story was just one among thousands of God's people that day being seduced away from God and towards the worship of Baal, an ancient pagan fertility god. And this unfaithfulness to God was a slap to his honor. It's saying God's character and glory are defective. It's saying that he is replaceable, he is substitutable. And this is unacceptable to God in his holiness. He's set apart, as we sang before, he's unique, he's above all else. There's no other God like him or beside him. The moment we put God above other gods, among other gods even, our relationship with him becomes one of dishonor. And that in a nutshell is why God behaved the way he does in number 20, Numbers 25. But we need to realize that there are two sides to this. Even though it's a stern warning to all of God's people not to dishonor him and his name, it should also provide immeasurable comfort to God's people. Because God is zealous for his honor. He is faithful to his promises, even though his people are unfaithful. In other words, God's zeal for his honor is the reason we can be assured that God's promise to save sinners who turn to him would be kept. And so this morning, we want to see through Numbers 25 how we must respond to God's zeal for his honor and be saved. We'll see that when God's zeal for his honor brings anger, we must fear him. We'll see that when God's zeal for his honor brings judgment, we must confess and repent. And we'll see that when God's zeal for his honor brings mercy, we need to receive his forgiveness. So when God, first, when God's zeal for his honor leads to anger, we must fear him. Verse 3 summarizes everything that's happened. Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Maybe this image of God's anger squares up 
exactly with your image of the God of the Old Testament. An angry, vengeful deity ready to crush you. A God who's out there to get you when you've made that slightest mistake. But verses 1 and 2 give us the facts behind God's anger. Israel is trapped, trapped by sin's temptation, sin's completion, sin's consequences. First, we see sin's temptation. Verse 1, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. A temptation that brought Israel to its knees was a classic beauty trap. At the Winter Olympics earlier this year, North Korea sent to South Korea an army of beauties. This was a team of female cheerleaders who actually numbered more than the athletes that they sent to the games. Their charm offensive consisted of synchronized singing, banner waving, and dancing. I don't think I would make that crowd, by the way. <laughs> With this imposing sea of red-clad women cheering in the stands, even the most mentally disciplined athlete would have had trouble maintaining their concentration. But cynical commentators have also suggested their presence was far more than just cheerleading. It was more about casting the North Korean regime in a softer political light. While the Moabite deception had a similar flavor, we realize later on in Numbers 31, verse 16, that this plot had Balaam's fingerprints all over it. Moabite and Midianite women were to entice the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Balaam realizes that if he's powerless to touch Israel with his words, he can destroy them from within by setting a wedge between Israel and their God. And it would work by two-shot plan. First, lure the Israelite men with physical temptation, and once their hearts are softened, go for the move that would neutralize the Israelite threat coax them to leave God, commit themselves to Baal. Balaam realized that by getting the Israelite men to leave God and to dishonor him, it would bring God's anger onto Israel's camp. And so we see sin's completion in verse 2. It reads, The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. I wonder if you see what's at stake here. By eating the sacrificial meal and bowing before the Baals, the Israelites allowed a false god to take the same position as God himself. Israel took the bait, has been reeled in, and is caught, line, hook, and sinker. They break the first two of the Ten Commandments. First, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make an idol and worship it. They broke the two cardinal laws of their national covenant, their national contract with God, that he and he alone would be their God and they would be his people. It's easy for us to stare at Israel's foolishness in taking the bait and getting trapped. But let's remind ourselves a little about how sin degrades. Even though we think about sin in black and white terms, guilty or innocent, the experience of sin is graduated. It's in degrees, isn't it? It's like a camera lens, aperture, Changing the aperture, changing the f-stops will let more light in and the picture becomes brighter or darker. And so it is with sin. Rarely do we see our sin as gross rebellion against God. They begin as small, acceptable indiscretions which accumulate and grow 
our attitudes become more and more ingrained in sinful patterns and behaviors. Think of a recurrent sin you've had trouble dealing with. Maybe it's lust, or maybe it's unremitting anger. Think about how they grow. We tell ourselves little lies as we commit them, telling ourselves, it's not so bad. It's a one-off thing. They deserved it. We make excuses for ourselves and justify actions to ourselves. And as they build, these lies entrench into our heart an attitude of indifference. We feel, we feel that we're right to satisfy our heart's desires. We feel that we were forced into a situation where it was not possible not to sin. And so isn't it apt that this passage speaks about sexual temptation as the way Israel was lured from God? Because for both men and women, this sin never starts with bold-faced defiance. Rather, it starts with acceptable, tolerable indiscretion. That first look that leads to the corruption of our thought lives. That first consideration of a romantic fantasy that leads to an intoxicating obsession. The emotional emptiness that lays us prey to the physical comfort of an illicit love affair. Adultery, sex outside of marriage, these never begin with an in-your-face attempt to threaten your marriage or your personal purity. Rather, they begin with an erosion of resistance. Israel wouldn't have fallen if they were invited straight up to worship Baal. But they were weakened. Their resistance was eroded by false assurances, both by the women who enticed them, but also by themselves when they gave themselves over to seeking pleasure over God's holiness. And so we see two aspects of the story coming together. The men of Israel began to be enticed sexually by the women of Moab, but in so doing, they were led to the more devastating sin of abandoning their God. And that's where they end up with sin's consequences, spiritual adultery. Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and they joined themselves to Baal worship, like sexual intercourse, with a God that was not truly God. And the result, they unhooked themselves from the true and living God. They cheated on God. And when we think of it this way, do we still truly think that God's anger is an overreaction? If this God was truly God, wouldn't Israel's contract breaking be a legitimate reason not only to abandon them, but to completely destroy them. We need to take note, because this dishonor is what brings God's holy anger. It's no less relevant for us today, because false gods abound, both in the world and inside the church. There's so many ways to put God second, third, fourth, or even last. So many ways to dishonor a jealous God. When we set up priorities for ourselves that override our devotion to God, we dishonor Him. When we go for things that make us happy and proud of what we can achieve with our own hands, we easily set aside God as the great provider. When our God-given ability and hard work brings us into a position of authority and influence, our servant heart easily becomes a little tyrant, demanding from God, demanding from others, and we forget our creatureliness before him. 
when we jettison God as our very great reward, we begin to seek comfort and joy in the things that rot and rust away. Even when we're serving in church ministries, hoping to earn others' praise, we forget our audience of one. So how do we fight this? I want to suggest to you that we need to be fearful of him and we need to fear him. First, we need to be fearful of him, absolutely terrified, because God hates rebellion. He hates the sin that turns his people from him, and in destroying sin, he would destroy the sinner and anything tainted by it, because he's holy. No impurity can stand before him. We must treat sin like some crazy outbreak of Ebola, bringing certain painful death. And second, we need to fear him. And by that, I mean we we need to be in awe of God. We need to come back to the realization that when we place false gods next to his name, we've already lost our way. We've forgotten who he is. Simply the creator, the Lord, our savior. What does God do in his anger? He judges. So next we see when God's zeal for his honor brings judgment, we must confess and repent. Verse 4 says, The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. Moses has been given some instructions to round up the leaders of the people, execute them and have their corpses exposed. And this would have been the punishment for the most heinous of criminals. This was to turn away God's anger. To our ears, this is quite an extreme act. And I think even Moses himself wasn't quite ready for it. Because in response to God, Moses issues a command in verse 5. That's slightly different. Moses says, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. It's almost as if Moses is telling the judges to do what they should have done before the situation got out of hand. He's telling the judges of the people to do their jobs and discipline the people so that they won't fall into sin. Only it's all a bit too late now, isn't it? Everything has already happened. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither was it destroyed in a night. The culture of the Israelite camp had already been building up to the moment of sin and rebellion against God. God's call to judgment may well have been in response to the act of national betrayal, but really, it's a condemnation of the prevailing culture too, which allowed them to be led astray. God's judgment is on Israel's failure to judge themselves. And so, as it turns out, neither Moses or God's call to judgment are obeyed. It's at this moment that we're confronted by the inaction of Israel's leaders and God's judgment flagrantly ignored. The Israelite leadership had failed to restrain the people. Moses is unable to carry out God's judgment. And so in verse 8, a greater judgment, a plague, has begun to rage among the Israelites. This picture of double judgment is daunting, isn't it? I wonder whether you've considered it in your own lives, in the context of your family, your marriage, in the context of our church. How failure to restrain ourselves, to soberly judge ourselves, can lead to further judgment. I'd like to know if you've ever thought seriously or soberly 
Kings Grove Church, about the culture that we're fostering and encouraging here at church? Is it a culture that honors God or one that's slowly eroding our faith in God's authority and goodness? Do we, ministry leaders, community group leaders, elders, pastors, deacons, does our leadership serve to teach, to nurture, to cultivate a people who honors God deeply and so are kept from God's judgment? Or are we leading our people into rebellion against God? Maybe imperceptibly at first, until in one cataclysmic moment, everything crashes down. I want to suggest to you this morning that God's judgment on Israel needs to serve as a warning to us. We need to repent of attitudes with which we serve with with which we serve him, with which we pursue things above him and fail to judge our own lives soberly. It's hard, isn't it? Because our judgment is crowded, clouded. We're marinating in a world that's thriving on anti-godness. Don't get me wrong, there are many things out there that is worth redeeming in our culture. But how and where do we start putting the stake in the ground and saying everything belongs to God? Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you that we need to think carefully about all sorts of things, about how to parent, how to lead, how to work, how to travel, how to rest and play. We need to do these things from core convictions. Our thoughts need to be shaped by God's word as our ultimate authority. Our actions need to be informed by what God is teaching us in his word, and so we need to think well about his word. And we need to mold our hearts in the shape of God's word. There's a point where we need to draw a line around us and say to the world, you can go so far only, but as for this house and us, we will serve the Lord. Well, the story slows right down in verses 6 to 8, and we zoom in on Zimri and Cosby. It's a story within a bigger story. Israel's national act of treason and God's judgment actually converge upon these two people. And they're not ordinary people. They're from families of leadership and authority. Zimri, the Israelite, was the son of a Simeonite leader, and he brings into the camp a Midianite woman, Cosby, who is the daughter of a Midianite chief. And as it's defying Moses directly and ultimately God, the text says that they enter the camp before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly. There's defiance in this public action. Even as Israel was weeping in distress over their plight, the very sin which had infected their hearts was now brought into the heart of the camp. So the woman and man enter into the private part of his tent to sexually consummate their Baal worship. And because Baal was a fertility god, the way to worship him was by having ritual sex. And right at the point here, this literal climax of the passage, judgment falls on them in the person of Phineas. He actually skewers them together which could have only meant one thing. They were already together in embrace. And with this, verse 8 ends abruptly. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. What's happening here is that in that moment, divine judgment is passed through Phineas and the anger of the Lord is satisfied. Phineas stops the plague. The death count stops at 24,000. Judgment is executed. God's anger is satisfied. How should we respond to this picture of God's judgment executed? 
I know there are some of us who might feel more like Moses. He's completely passive in this case. We're not inclined to bring ourselves to act with conviction upon sin. And if that's you, we need to be warned by God's judgment. We need to confess and repent of our slowness to defend God's honor. And yet some of us are like the weeping Israelites. We might be ashamed or in fear of the coming judgment, but we're paralyzed by guilt and inaction. We also need to confess and repent. Because as we begin to do that, we begin to be rescued from our sin, from our shame, from our fear, and from our guilt. And yet for others, we remain like Zimri. God was already dead to him. He rejected God with his actions. In a sense, all of us, whether we believe in Jesus Christ or not, at one stage would have been like him. We've all rejected him and walked past him. We ask, would there be hope for us anyway? My plea with you today, don't ever think that your sin is too shameful, too great, too powerful for God to forgive. He makes a way, and he has made a way. And that's the third point. When God's zeal for his honor brings mercy, we must humbly receive his forgiveness. It's really surprising, isn't it? So far we've heard about God's anger, his judgment, but now in this last section we also see his mercy is a demonstration of his honor. This is the amazing thing. In his perfect righteousness, in his perfect holiness and purity, God shows perfect mercy. God's mercy is that his anger can be absorbed. He provides a way, a person to deal with sin. In our story, this person is Phineas. God is merciful to Israel in sending Phineas. We see that he, being zealous for God's honor, was a godsend that day to save Israel. Because without Phineas' intervention, God's anger and judgment would have wiped out the entire nation. Who is he? We'll meet him in verses 7 and 11, where he's formally introduced as a priest. He's born into the priesthood. He's a son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the first high priest. And this title is meant to draw our attention to the fact that Phineas is performing the role and duty of a priest. He stands between a holy God and sinners. And in this story, only Phineas acts as God's chosen instrument to show both God's holy judgment and his mercy. In verse 11, God says to Moses, Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to Israel in my zeal. Phineas's execution stops the plague. It turns away God's anger from Israel. In that action is God's holy mercy. I wonder if you're puzzling over how this one man could carry out judgment and also be the bringer of mercy. He's like a double-edged sword. No matter which way you touch it, you're cut. And yet, this is the amazing thing about it. In being zealous for God's honor, Phineas took upon himself God's character. Because God is both holy and merciful, Phineas' action was doubly effective. In his passion against sin, he judged. And in his performance of that, he brought great salvation to his people. 
In many ways, what happened at Peor would be a mirror for Israel to return to through a long history of spiritual adultery. Again and again, Israel would fall and follow other gods. And the pattern of sin and fall, national judgment, followed by repentance and redemption by a hero, would repeat itself on loop like a broken record. Yet even though the Israelites had Phineas and his descendants to be a priesthood before the Lord forever, sin would eventually corrupt Israel's priests. Their sacrifices were limited. Their own lives were far from holy. And so in his mercy, God provides another high priest. The book of Hebrews says he is of the order of Melchizedek, not from Aaron. God sends another who would come amongst his people. And we see him in action in John chapter 2. As Jesus clears the temple courts, full of people looking to profit from the worship of God, it says, zeal for his heavenly father's honor consumes him. And just as God provided Phineas to Israel as a demonstration of his mercy, God sent his only son on a priestly rescue mission. Like Phineas, Jesus would fulfill his mission in obedience. Only where Phineas takes away God's anger by shedding the blood of two sinners, stopping the carnage at 24,000, Jesus does so by shedding his own perfect blood as sufficient sacrifice for all humanity. Whereas Phineas' momentary zeal would be honored by God, it'd be God the Father's pleasure to see his son obeying, even to the point of death on a cross. God, in his zeal for his honor, sends his son to die to show how deadly serious he is about reversing the tide of sin, not just among his chosen people, the Jews, but in the world. His mercy, not just for Israel, but for all people. Brothers and sisters, we're left with a simple and undeniable truth. When God offers mercy, we must receive it. To reject the offer of this gospel is to dishonor God further, not just by our sin, but by our rejection of his mercy. This rejection takes our guilt further, because at the heart of it, we're rejecting the one God has honored, whom God has provided, and whom God has glorified already in his resurrection. Rejection of Jesus isn't simply a lifestyle choice or a decision about what makes sense to us. It's a declaration of our position before God, whether we receive with humility what he offers us in mercy or we reject it with stubborn defiance. This morning we're faced with a God whose zeal for his honor may seem to us frightful, cruel, incoherent. He's angry with his own people. He's severe in judgment. And yet he shows mercy. It's in this encounter that we realize that Yahweh is not a God like Baal, a God whom we fashion after our own lusts and our desires. God is holy like no other. This holiness is applied to every act and word that comes from him. His anger is holy. His judgment is holy. His mercy is holy. His zeal, this frightful, exacting pursuit for his name to be glorified, accomplishes everything he wills. So our response today is the same response Israel needed to have in the plains of Moab. If you've been following me, it's the response we need to have to receive this free offer of his gospel. God does all things for the sake of his honor. In the face of his anger, we need to fear him. 
In the face of his judgment, we need to confess and repent of our sin. In the face of his mercy, we need to humbly receive his forgiveness. Would you pray today that your zeal for God's honour might be restored again?